Welcome to Talking Early Years, the podcast hosted by me, Juno Sullivan. And today I have a very special guest. She's Helen Moylet, known to many of you for her outspoken and passionate um, contribution to the sector. She's got a fascinating history that covers uh, direct working, um, teaching, uh, community work, uh, academic work, uh, strategy work, policy work and straightforward campaigning. Um, I'm going to ask Helen to tell us us much more about herself, but what we're going to talk about today is that rather um, interesting concept that I know is causing quite a lot of consternation known as cultural capital. So welcome, Helen, and thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. So yeah, here we are in the one metre distance uh, COVID world of... um, Leaf headquarters, which is very empty. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's the emptiest nursery I've been in for a long time, I think. And we'll be emptier if we don't sort out occupancy. Why don't we start by uh, telling us a bit about yourself and why the the concept of cultural capital was of interest to you Mm. and you were one of the first to write about it when it was announced as part of the new inspection framework? Um, Well, yes, I've I've always been interested in culture, I think, because I'm a child of two different cultures. I was born to a mother who was quite posh and very middle class and to a father who came from much poorer Southern Irish Catholic roots. And I have always juggled those two cultures and also been very aware of the way in which we can other people who are not from our own cultural background. So, for instance, at school, I went to a convent school. And the world was very... Welcome to my world, too. Yes. (laughs) The world was divided into Catholics and non-Catholics. In other words, the saved and the damned, really. And and that was very fine and secure in school. But outside school, where I knew quite a lot of people who were not Catholics and who were my friends, um, I also found prejudice against people like me with my Irish background who were known as bog trotters. And also lots of other things that made me feel that I didn't quite fit in in various places and I've never really, I've always had that feeling of sometimes being a square peg in a round hole. I mean, I was destined to go to university and my father wanted me to do something that was not teaching, although I wanted to be a teacher even then, because teaching was seen as beneath what I could do. And my only form of rebellion was to go to Manchester instead of to Oxbridge. And um, that's the sort of background I was, you know, trying to to deal with. And um, I did a law degree at Manchester. And one of the things about the law degree that made me, I didn't enjoy it very much, but I finished it, was that I got very interested in how societies formed, what things matter, how do we educate people to understand how things actually work and what the rule of law is all about, and the sort of underlying sociology of how, as a society, we have rules and norms about things. Mm. And I knew that I'd grown up with different sets of norms and rules, depending where I was, like we all do. Mm -hmm. So that was a sort of interest, as I then, eventually, after a couple of years after my degree, I went and did a PGC in primary teaching. And I took those interests with me. And at the time, in the 70s, late 70s, but still, that was a long time ago, um, I was very interested in the ideas of education and social control. There was a seminal text by people called Sharp and Green and something else by Paul Willis on learning to labour about how working class children are basically 
have their culture subverted by the school system, etc. And how, you know, the school system reinforces what we already know about society and in a very class-driven society, which Britain still is to a large extent, you know, how all that played out in classrooms. I also got interested in French philosophers like Bourdieu, who was the one who came up with the ideas about cultural capital. And so I've had this long-running interest in all of that. And then, you know, eventually, after many years, went on, you know, to do various teaching jobs, but also ended up working in the university and doing my master's degree and looking in much more detail at some of that stuff about how we how we other children very often in the education system, including in early years, because one of the things that, one of the ways I came into early years wasn't in my training. It was because I became a homeschool teacher because I was interested in how we work with parents. The first school I worked in, in inner city Manchester, was run by a head teacher who despised the family. And I found that completely unacceptable. He talked about these people. I thought, these people are our people. These are just people. These are humans, and their children are lovely. Um, and I found out all about these people by doing things that the head didn't approve of. Like, me and my class of nine and ten-year-olds entered a competition without permission. We were told we mustn't, but we did it anyway, to build an Incredible Hulk. Now, this was in the days when the Incredible Hulk was, you know, the first time round. Mm -hmm. um, but hopefully young practitioners listening to this will understand what I'm talking about now because we've had a resurgence of the green the green giant. And um yeah, we, we made this thing and it was a competition to go to the local cinema if we wanted to see a film of the Hulk. So I mean, you know, the kids were really into it all. And uh, we won. Amazingly. We made the, I don't know what we were doing. We were in a classroom with thirty six children with no sink, no water, and we were doing papier mache and chicken wire secretly. I mean it was ridiculous. And um, anyway, we got to the cinema and, the, and that was a turning point for me in my relationships with parents because I got to know a lot of them because, of course, they had to come with us. I mean, you know, yeah. and of course, we had a queue of them we wanted to. So, you know, that sort of made me think there is more to life than thinking about people as somehow because they're disadvantaged. They were poor. But, you know, they had cultural capital. I found out all sorts of interesting things about them. And that has been a sort of abiding interest as I've gone on, really. Um, so, you know, it's... And there were some things that happened. I mean, you know, I moved to a different school, to two different schools, actually. And in the third one, the third school I worked in, I set up a toddler group for the mums because that's what they wanted. And I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, we had a completely unsuitable room. We had... It was just a nightmare. And mums who were, you know, from all sorts of different backgrounds and things, very young children. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But I knew that I needed to know more because the mums were depending on me to mm. talk to them about child development. And I was pretty clueless. I mean, I've had three younger sisters and quite a lot. And I'd worked in a preschool playgroup helping a friend of my mum's many years ago. And boy, did I need that experience. But I mean, you know, it wasn't enough. Mm. It wasn't enough to sort of be able to answer questions about why two-year-olds have tantrums and what can I do when, you know. So I found early years people. I found early years people, my colleagues, but also I found Leslie Abbott and what was the poly then, and I found the local branch of early education, and I found all sorts of people, and I just threw myself on their mercy and said, help, I need help, you know, tell me more um, about these children, and I got so interested in it all. So, you know, it was all part of that of being just really working with families and thinking they have so much to offer if the school system would just listen 
beyond its own sort of middle class, rather, you know, we must get these people to think more like us sort of attitude. Mm. But so that's been a sort of abiding interest. And then there were some seminal things like Tizard and Hughes' research oh, on yeah. 1984. Yeah. And I, can, I remember going into school and saying, we have to all read this. This is amazing, you know, because actually what they were saying was there are these children at home with their mums having all these amazing conversations in working class environments. And then they're going into nursery and those children are silenced because they don't get how they're supposed to respond. And there are other children coming to nursery who've had it all sort of, they've had the way prepared for them. And they sort of get how these teachers talk and how these, you know, everybody in a nursery behaves themselves. And and they just, they, they sort of feel alienated and they shut down. And then they start talking and when they're at home. Now, yeah, there is something deeply wrong about that, isn't there? Mm. So, you know, that was really, and I was very interested in early language development, so it just fed into a load of stuff. And I'd just like to share a quote with you, which I've used so often in training, because it's from a Marxist educationist, American, called Michael Apple, who talks about curriculum, and he's written a book on curriculum. He's just actually put a really fairly recently produced another version of it. But this is from 1990, and this sums up, for me, what is wrong with our system. A nation is not a firm, a school is not part of that firm, efficiently churning out the human capital required to run it. We do damage to our very sense of the common good, to even think of the human drama of education in those terms. And I think that, yes. for me, is what it's about. You know, and he's talking about schools, but it could equally be early years settings. I mean, mm -hmm. I've spent most of my, you know, sort of fairly recent teaching career being in teaching in or working with students in them, you know, in early years places of all sorts. And actually, we're not part of that. The school readiness agenda does us a huge disservice because we are not part of that. No. Early childhood is an important stage in its own right. Yeah. And actually, you know, if we start going down that road where we're just, you know, it's human capital rather than people who come with amazing stuff, then, you know, anyway, I, that's enough. Good Lord. Well, um, it's 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 an interesting journey because uh, sort of woven through all of that is the sense that everybody starts with some of their own cultural capital, Absolutely. but it not may not be valued in the way. And I think mm. that the Bardieu stuff was very interesting in the mm. way it identified that. And also, people often thought of uh, cultural capital only in terms of the Beaux Arts, you know, mm. um, sort of high arts. And yeah. that's great if you're interested in high art, that's fine. But it's it it kind of it didn't explore the kind of wider sense. So how do you kind of think about cultural capital in terms of uh, sort of early years? And, um, you know, my anxiety is that it'll be converted into some kind of little tick box thing of going to the library and um, going yes. to an art gallery or, oh. you know, having a conversation with words of more than two syllables. Um, and I'm a bit worried about that because cultural capital at LEAF is really powerful and it's driven entirely by language and literacy because our view is everybody starts with something. Everybody's mm. got something to offer and you just have to pay attention to that. Mm. But actually the gap that is driving the kind of educational kind of gap is driven usually by language. So the whole way we operate and through our leaf pedagogy and our spiral curriculum mm. is about extending language. And we're very clear about that. Mm. But worries me that loads of places have got very insecure on this. So what they'll do is they'll have a folder called cultural capital mm -hmm. and they'll in there they'll put outings and um i don't know of j's that they're mm. going to work with and it'll 
be very tokenistic and it mm. won't actually explore. So what are your thoughts on that and how would you define cultural capital? Well, I think cultural capital is all those sorts of norms and values and beliefs that we gain as people from being part of our families and our cultural groups and everything else, but, you know, all the groups that we're all part of. Because no one's ever part of just one group, are they? Mm. You know, when you come to nursery, you become part of another group. Mm. Um, so I think it's all of those things. And we've all got it. And um, I'm very interested in Liz Chesworth's recent research on children's funds of knowledge. And oh, I think yeah. That's, that's a very really, yeah. really good way of looking at it, mm. that all children come with funds of knowledge about things. You know, and that actually... What we can do in terms of cultural capital, yeah, we can, because one of our professional duties is to be able to extend children's ideas, obviously. You know, I mean, yes, we recognise what they come with, but part of the duty of any nursery or any year setting is to say, right, we've got these children coming in with these things, but we've got to, we can't assume what they're coming in with. We've got to find out about those. And then we build on those in order to extend their cultural capital. And it may be completely appropriate to take some children to the local museum because they're interested in something that you think. It may be more appropriate to start by just taking children for a wander around the area yeah. and, you know, say hello to the shopkeepers and do all that. That's cultural capital. That is just as much as value as tootling off to the V&A or something, you know. And, in fact, it's probably more valuable, actually, yeah. you know, in the long run. But I think that... You know, if we're not careful, yes, we end up with a tick list because Ofsted say, well, you know, yeah, okay, Ofsted, I think, have got a very weird notion of cultural capital. It's very narrow, I think, if we're not careful. And that is the problem because then we get into, I mean, if you look at Ofsted's video on it for early years, because they did get somewhat attacked for their, you know, it's all about vocabulary. And like you, June, I'm really passionate about early language. We give children language. That's what we should be doing. Mm. And actually, it's one of the most difficult things to do mm. well. It's where pe- children are, children, practitioners are underqualified very often yeah. in terms of early language development. Mm-hmm. And they don't get, actually, that it's not what you do, it's how you do it that really matters yeah. with language. And it's not about giving children, you know, I'm worried about the vocabulary thing, because Ofsted seem to think cultural capital is mainly about vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And they even talk about it in the same bracket, vocabulary and cultural capital is part of their phraseology. Right. So, you know, that worries me because vocabulary is only a proxy indicator of a whole load of other ways of using language, which are more important than just knowing the words. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm trying to learn Spanish. I have been doing for years. And I know a lot of vocabulary. The problem I've got is I can't string it together into anything meaningful. I'm the same with my Italian, I have to say. I know yeah. loads of vocabulary now, but yeah. I have to just speak in those kind of yeah, just yeah. words. Exactly. <laughs> so that's because it doesn't, you know, to have a wide vocabulary and the sort of children who come in with a good vocabulary, what they're doing is indicating to us that they know so much about the structures of language, about how you use language, about how you can try out new words, because you've got the basic structures. And what we should be doing with children is not worrying so much about vocabulary, but worrying more about actually understanding how language develops and how it's all based on listening, attention and social skills and all of those things that we need to help children to develop more. And one of the ways that I think is a really good way of developing children's underlying social interaction skills, whatever language they're coming in with, um, et cetera, is tuning into them finding out what they're interested in, that may not be a lot of language involved in that. That may be just sitting back and watching what happens. 
and actually tuning into those children and then building on what they're interested. They learn vocabulary through meaningful interaction, Absolutely. not from giving lists. And the same thing with cultural capital. If we think, well, these children seem to know an awful lot about you know, their own culture, maybe, but what do I know about it? One, is it, an is it a cultural exchange that goes on or is it all one-way traffic? But also, you know, yes, it would be great if these children understood more about, you know, we've noticed that they don't really get, I mean, for instance, you know, they don't really have a lot of vocabulary around the food they're eating. Mm. Well, where's the food they're eating? You know, let's go out in the street and find out, you know, how does this shopkeeper end up selling blueberries that come, I mean, I've just had this experience recently, you know, I've got a shop near me that sells blueberries that were grown in England at this time. But they also sell blueberries from Poland yeah. and also from Peru. How does that happen? You know, what's going on here? What does the shopkeeper do? How did he come there in the shop? Yeah. He hasn't got a bush outside on the pavement. Yeah, yeah. These are much more interesting things, aren't they? Well, they take you back to that um, book you referenced, The Funds of Knowledge, which I was introduced to by Joe Basford, who yes, indeed, was I know at Joe. Yeah, yeah. Metropolitan, Manchester Metropolitan. Yeah. And she introduced me to the original book, which yeah. was um, in um, in one of the um, Mexican uh, kind of border, U.S.-Mexican border towns, where right. they the teachers there were beginning to get fed up, I guess, of the devaluing mm. of the Spanish mm. group. And uh, they began to explore the fact that actually if you visited a Spanish house, mm. you found A, the children spoke two languages. Mm. B, you found that they actually had a whole way of behaving that was actually had some validity. And actually in learning that, yeah. it was very interesting for you because it broadened your own yeah. cultural capital as well. And that really got me thinking about context. Because mm. I think uh, your point about context is really powerful. And for years, I've always taken the view that it's if we're London-based nurseries, mm. and if our local area is involves Tate Gallery, mm. which it does yeah. in, this, in this particular nursery, yeah. this is the streets we should own. And I yeah. always say that to the staff: you mm. own your neighbourhood by yeah. walking it, yeah. by talking it, by understanding it. By when you take the children to the Tate Gallery, that actually they're saying, "That's my house. That's where my aunt yeah. lives. That's my bus." Yeah. And that when you go in there, it's yeah. it's part of the way, you yeah. know, you believe. There are things, though, I think that are important, and I wonder what you think about this. Is that you may think that this is quite patronising, but I always prepare the staff because there is one thing I've always learned from my background is that there are codes of operation that you that are secret. Yeah. And um, I guess maybe when you you come to live in another country, like I came to live in in, in England many years ago, um, and I think you sometimes, as an observer, you see that clearer than the people that live mm. there. And that, you know, and words mean things you don't understand. So when yeah. someone says, uh, see you later, in where I come from, that would mean literally you would see them in a couple of hours. When yeah. see you later means you could see them in months or yeah. years even. Um, and those kind of codes. And again, uh, you know, going to an art gallery, there is um, a set yeah. of behaviours. Mm. You don't walk in front of somebody looking at a painting, for example. Yeah. You don't raise your voice in there because it's a calm place. And preparing people so that they yeah. don't go in feeling stupid. Yeah. And so we did a lot of work with some of the staff, taking them on their own first. Yeah. And there was a lovely piece of work done ages and ages ago. I think Westminster Council was involved in it about uh, what is cultural, what is, what is, how do you prepare people for this notion of cultural uh, expansion, I guess. Mm. And I don't know that unless we do some of that for a lot of our staff, 
not just in London, but anywhere, mm. whether it's rural or it's small mm. town, whatever it is, that we probably won't shift. Yeah. Well, I think you're right, actually. I mean, that's my experience as well. Um, that actually, yes, I mean, it's, it's all right for me. I mean, I was brought up going to art galleries and things. But we have this idea that somehow, you know, as members of staff, obviously, if you take a group of children and their parents or whoever with you, they look to you for leadership. Mm. But we have to prepare staff to be able to lead appropriately. Okay. And that is so important. I totally agree. You know, I mean, I can remember taking a group of children to Manchester Art Gallery because like you, I used to work in inner city Manchester and we could literally, I mean, we you can walk to the Tate from here. We could get on a bus and go a mile down the road and be in the centre of Manchester and none of the children in my class have been to Manchester City Art Gallery. It's free. So I thought, right, we need to take some parents as well so that this becomes something, the bus is very cheap. You know, we can just get on a bus, we can go because they never went anywhere. Yes. Um, now that's expanding people's horizons to, you know, we've explored our local area. How does our little area fit with the city centre? Mm. We are part of this huge Conurbation called Manchester that we're all very proud of as Mancunians, you know. I mean, I was an adopted Mancunian for God knows how many. I lived there for a long, long time. But you know, let's try. But it was about taking, definitely taking staff with me on that journey of saying, right. I mean, how many of you've been to the art gallery recently? Let's just go and have a. Yeah. Let's go and have a little staff outing, and we'll go for a drink after. And yeah. We'll, you know. Yeah, yeah. And we'll because actually it is. It's what Bourdieu calls habitus and knowing the rules of the game. Yeah. And actually, the rules of the game, not, you know, if you haven't had the experience, why would you know? Yeah. I mean, I cannot explain the offside rule in no. football. I, you know, I think... You watch Bended Like Beckham. Yeah. That's the film. Yes. But I mean, you know... Karen Knightley will tell you. But I know about the classical music concert. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, though, you see, this idea of high culture becomes all pervasive, doesn't it? Yeah. And becomes a way of people making... That people feel inferior if they don't get it. Yeah. I mean, I published an article in Nursery World about cultural capital, and they illustrated it with a string quartet. All right. And I thought, why? Nursery World never illustrates things with string quartets, normally speaking. No. But because it was... Yeah, because the cultural capital is still in people's minds associated only with the Beaux-Arts. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's something we have to, to yeah. crack. But I, I, I often kind of think about it, it's a bit like inclusion, do you not yeah. think? Yeah, it's That it's totally. about... Um, understanding people have different experiences and 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 you know and understanding what that looks like yeah. and how you open doors for people but yeah. not just say oh you know like that the l'oreal thing because you're worth it honestly yeah. that should be shut oh, down yes. but you know but actually giving them paths to it yeah so they understand so if the children are going to sleep in the day you can play wild music string quartets whatever you yeah, like yeah but in opening their minds to the, yeah. the routine i think is a really good route to cultural capital and yeah. conversations and yeah. but it, do you not think it also touches on things like your unbiasedness you know your own yeah. biased consciousness about yeah. you know your like you said about that head teacher of yours who yeah. despised actually the people yeah, the poor yeah. people that he was working with yeah. because they were just not Good oh, because they were poor, and yeah. you know, and, it, and unfortunately now we have a government that is all about meritocracy, and you know, I mean, we won't go into the no GCSE. We've only got half an hour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, <laughs> you know, it's all about competition, and somehow, you know, it's all about you can be 
you know, you don't have to be poor. If you could just work hard, you'll be, you know, it's that yeah. idea. And actually, we know this is not true. No, it's absolutely not true. And absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, we have a government that's plunged more and more people into poverty, actually, yeah. mm-hmm. whilst at the same time talking about stupid things like levelling up. Yes, there so are you, you there know. are structural barriers that no matter how clever you are, no matter how willing your family is, yeah. no matter how hard you work, you can't overcome them. But, you know, we have to give, I mean, I think we have to have that mission, don't we, to help children be the best they can be. And the best they can be is to build on what they bring already. I mean, Teferiki, you know, the New Zealand curriculum, talks about I come not only with my own strength, but with the strength of my family, tribe and ancestors, Mm. which I think is a wonderful statement Mm. to have in a curriculum document. You know, saying, yeah, these children bring all of this with them. And then we build on that. I mean, there's some really interesting work going on in all sorts of early years places with, you know, just really listening to children and thinking... You know, but also expanding their horizons, helping the staff. So my experience, I mean, training is another. Yeah, so let's talk know. about that, actually, because that's um, that's a that's a real concern, I think, isn't yeah. it? I mean, we're really blessed here because we work very closely with the University of Wolverhampton and yeah. we've got our degree with them now and yeah. everything, um, which we uh, are in the second cohort of. Mm. And that's been very interesting for us because for many of my staff, uh, they would never have got that. That's a route that wouldn't have yeah, been open exactly. to them. But it has to be a route of validity because no one wants to go to a subtext degree. No. They all want to go to one that has real yeah. kind of, yeah. you know, um, reputation actually yeah. and value. So, um, but the training around cultural capital does worry me somewhat. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's really my experience of it. Having been asked since, you know, we had this, you know, you and I started writing about it and all mm-hmm. of that. I've been asked to do a few sessions, you know, with existing practitioners, not with sort of, I've done one actually with a group of students. But what I found was really interesting, that they found it really difficult to identify their own cultural capital and their own biases. And it reminded me of um, things like anti-racist education, which people get very worried about because they don't want to admit to their own prejudices and biases. And it was almost like, with a particular, I'm just thinking of a particular group of practitioners, they couldn't admit that maybe they were bringing their own values. And they also, I discovered, and talking to them informally, you know, after the session, that some of them, I was in this mixed group of teachers, childminders, you know, all the different early years practitioners. Mm-hmm. It was a really mixed bag, which normally speaking, I really welcome because I think it's great to get everyone together. Yeah, yeah. Particularly across that school setting divide. Yeah. But what I'd found with the earlier that they felt intimidated by some of the teachers. Yeah. Now, I can quite, quite understand that. And I thought, yeah, we need to be very sensitive about training here because until we actually address our own cultural capital and our own prejudices around it, we can't move forward with children, wherever we're coming from. Whether we're a level two practitioner who's only 17 yeah. and has had a very limited experience so far of working with families and all of that, you yeah. know, yeah. or you're someone who's been teaching for years or you're someone who has been like me. Uh-huh. I mean, you know... You have to just think about how do we help these people to, because these are fundamental issues about society. Yes. They're not, you know, let's make sure that we all know the correct maths concepts we're all teaching. Yeah. You know, this is important. This and is social justice, really, isn't it? It is. In and it's, you know, and social justice is hard. And I mean, if, if COVID and Black Lives Matter have taught us nothing, apart from the fact that we have to start listening to people and it's no longer okay, it's no longer good enough in any way at all, to not listen 
to those who've been oppressed and othered all this time, you know, and who are minorities, we have to do something about that. And one way we can do that is by looking at our own, you know, putting our own house in order in early years. I don't think, unfortunately, New Year Manifest is going to help us with that. But No, I think it's, it narrows rather than, than yeah. widens. But um, I think if we were to... If I was to be given a golden golden wand, apart from melting it down to see that we're going to survive COVID yes. and actually we can yes. build our occupancy yes. so we can keep yes. going. Um, I think I wonder about whether I, I would think about cultural capital in the wider context of inclusion and, and yes. opening opportunities. Because if you were to do, you know, when you track at the moment uh, yeah. data, some of the scary stuff is... Uh, almost a response to a policy response. So, for example, um, the most disadvantaged group at the moment are white working-class boys um, who get no mention of anything because sometimes it's not a political... There's no political will around that group. Uh, and then that's one thing. The second thing is that when we're looking at it in the it, through the lens of groups and minorities, what happens is you get some policy decision made, some money thrown at that particular group. The particular group then get a load of resources and some support. Mm. That goes on for a fixed time. Nothing shifts the structural barriers underneath no. those things. Less money goes to somewhere else. That becomes a problem. Mm. And then the money is taken away from the group given to the other group, and by which point that group goes down the pan, because structurally, we're not actually moving forward. So just to conclude, really, do you think that um, we could kind of own the concept of cultural capital in a way that's aligned to inclusion, but also builds um, a kind of a structural response, a systemic response, really, to training and, uh, you know, support within the sector, and a kind of, I suppose, a kind of sector narrative around what is ultimately about fairness and yeah. social, um, I mean, maybe maybe justice seems a very big word for small children, but it is around some of that stuff. It is, and I think if we start thinking of every early year setting, whether that's a childminder's house or a great big, you know, reef nursery or whatever, as a learning community where we're all learners in it together and we learn from each other and what the funding comes for is for the learning which has to start with the prime areas without a doubt i mean you know and the characteristics of effective learning if we're talking english curriculum stuff here yeah you know that actually and your focus on language i think is very welcome because what that does when you do training around that stuff is you cannot be a language user without really, if you look at it properly, looking at what you are, what are the messages you're giving in the language you use? Yeah. Not just that I'm teaching a child this vocabulary, but, but that my whole way of expressing yeah. myself says a whole load of stuff yeah. about me, yeah. actually, just like the children's way of expressing themselves does, and just like the parents does. So we have to come together and think about, well, how do we help practitioners to understand that actually it's all in the interaction with the children and their families? And that's where we'll do the learning. Mm. And actually, the social justice stuff comes from that complete commitment to equality and fairness within our learning communities. Mm -hmm. And that is about, you know, making sure we all have those opportunities. Mm -hmm. It's not about the sort of national curriculum, let's give every child a dose of the best that's been thought and said, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunate that Ofsted has borrowed that phrase, the national curriculum. Because, you know... The best that's been thought and said often goes on, you know, between two, two and a three-year-old in a nursery that day. You know, you yes. think, wow, this is amazing. 
Yes. Um, sort of takes you to the sort of Gus and Paley notion of the yeah. the child is the philosopher and, yeah. and, and following their very interesting thinking processes and exactly. taking down some very interesting routes. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, and I kid about inclusion, mm. but of course we're now at the point, like you, you're on the sharp end of this fighting for funding. Yeah. You know, we've got all the recent reports on parents, yeah. you know, and with children with SEND during uh, COVID. Yeah. I mean, you know. We've seen it live here, actually, I have yeah. to tell you. We yeah. run, run holiday clubs because... Our children from more disadvantaged backgrounds have been much more hammered by it because their parents have been terrorised by it. Yeah. And I think if you're living on the edge of poverty and, yeah. you know, you have very little support around you, that yeah. anything is going to tip you into complete abject poverty. Yeah. You're going to be more highly anxious, aren't you, in these circumstances? Yes, absolutely. Mm. Terrible. So, I mean, you know, our sort of commitment to that inclusion, I just wish the government would, because they won't, though, because they have this neoliberal ideology, which is basically all about marketplace and competition and you know closing the gap is about you know things to do with society rather than seeing childhood as an important Getting stage into you know, school, yeah. yeah it's all that school readiness nonsense um but i mean you know if we could just come to that idea of looking at that early years i mean you think of the uifs principle every child is a unique yeah. child yeah. who can be all resilient confident self-assured and all of those things yeah. if we really put that into practice then we would be totally inclusive We'd have to be, because we'd really believe that, that yeah. every child is worthy of respect and value. And every child is a human being, not a human becoming. Yeah. Of course we're all becoming. We're all becoming something, you know. No. Yeah. But actually, right now, in the moment, is we are being. And, you know, those children deserve far more than they're getting, actually. Yeah. But, yeah, inclusion is what it's about, isn't it? Everybody feeling, nobody feeling others, everybody feeling we're part of this. If we can do that in a little way in a learning community that is an early years setting, all the better. Well, thank you, Helen. That was powerful, philosophical, and um, has got my brain really spinning now around some further work because we're currently doing some work on inclusion. So thank you. I think we might be having another conversation on this in some, some way. Well, that would be good. <laughs> so thanks again for coming all the way up and uh, coming on the train. Well, it's an adventure. <laughs> for joining me today if you like what you heard please share it or check us out on our website leaf.org.uk